Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Welcome back. Triple Threat Theater, episode 34. I'm Joe Daxberger. And that would make me Ryan Miller. Oh, hey, Millsy. Sup, Dex? Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> we watching some action movies? Is that what you're trying to tell uh, me? Well, hmm. Maybe, I guess one of these, maybe if you want to just. It's got Aikido, so it could be considered a <laughs> That's true. Movie. I think it'd still be a stretch to call it an action film, though. Well, you know, Millsy, in this day and age, you've got your, uh, what would you say, that hyphenate, hyphenated movie genres? You know, your horror comedies, your action comedies. Action horrors. You definitely do, but I mean, you know my method. I always like to just fall back on the tried and true classic of if you were looking for it in blockbuster video, mm. what section would it be in? I mean, quite frankly, that's the best way to go. I don't I, like the hyphenated jam. I mean, if it's horror, it's horror. If it's action, it's action. You know, comedy, drama. I'm generally with you. I mean... Casually, if you're like trying to tell somebody about a movie that like you think they might like or something, like if I oh, well, if, sure. if you'd never heard of Tremors and I was like, oh yeah, and I had to decide in my head like, okay, it has to either be comedy or horror. Like describing that as a straight up horror movie might be a little uh, misleading. That's so fair. just I mean, you yeah, know, being able to say like, yeah, it's like a horror comedy, but in the unrealistic scenario that doesn't exist where there's a gun to my head and I have to decide which one it is, you know, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to go with horror because it's about giant worms that eat people. <laughs> right. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, if you're getting in the nitty gritty and you're describing something someone, sure. But I, I, I like the, the blockbuster method, which I think it should officially be referred to as now. Yeah. I, uh, I like it. I've always kind of gone by that one and I think mm-hmm. it makes the most sense. So works for me. Well, in that case, Mills looks like, Tonight we're watching three comedies. I'd say that's true. Indeed. And I'll let you say the title because I don't want to invoke any demons. Oh, you know, I'll take that challenge on. Episode 34, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Now, if I'm correct and I have all of my folklore down, that means Mm. that now that you've said that, John Candy is going to appear and murder you. Going forward, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I'll keep my eye out, but we'll see. Millsy. Yeah. Tonight, Brewster's Millions from 1985. Mm-hmm. Planes, Trains, Automobiles from 1987. Mm-hmm. Rounded out. 1989's Who's Harry Crumb? Yes, indeed. Millsy, give me the breakdown. What have you seen? What have you not seen? What do you love? <laughs> what do you uh, hate? I've seen and enjoyed Planes, Trains, and Automobiles before. Okay. That's a good one. Never saw Brewster's Millions. Uh, I only vaguely knew of its existence. I don't think I could have told you John Candy was in it before we did this. Mm-hmm. Even though I believe he is right there on the poster. But Indeed. I knew that as a Richard Pryor movie and knew that it had something to do with a lot of money and that's it. 
And then uh, who's Harry Crumb? Seen the poster, knew of it, didn't really know what it was. I could assume it was like a slapstick comedy kind of thing from the poster, but mm-hmm. heretofore Brewster's Millions and Who's Harry Crumb had not been movies that I was like dying to get my eyes on, but I was aware of both. Makes sense. Pretty much the same. Well, no, not quite the same for me. I was unaware of Brewster's Millions. Oh, entirely? I mean, if it's like this. If you would have asked me beforehand, name a bunch of John Keeney movies, never would have mentioned that. Name a <laughs> bunch of Richard Pryor movies, never would have mentioned that. I'd have gotten you on the Richard Pryor one, but not John Candy, like I yeah, said. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, if you asked me, is there such a movie called Brewster's Millions? I don't know. Maybe. As we'll surely talk about, there's actually like six movies called Brewster's Millions. But... <laughs> well, well, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> so I'd never seen, barely heard of that. Uh, I knew Planes, Trains, Automobiles was a classic people love. Never saw that one. Oh. And Who's Harry Crumb? Kind of same thing. I knew that poster. I knew it was a John Candy flick, but that was it. Never seen a single second from it. After watching it, I knew it was all new to me. So you hadn't seen any of these before? No, sir. Okay. Planes, Trains, I guess, is just one of those ones that slipped by, was never on HBO back in the 80s or 90s when I was watching or something. You know? Yeah. Just, we didn't own it. It's just one of those ones that slipped by. I always said, you know, I'd like to watch that someday. Maybe I'll have a podcast. Who knows? <laughs> Man, you were really forward thinking. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, got lists and lists of movies. I was like, I got to wait to have me a podcast before I can watch any of these. I don't remember the circumstances exactly when I first saw Planes, Trains. I'd only seen it once before, and I think it might have been in that time period I've talked about many times where I uh, had my back surgery and then for two years just watched Netflix movies, Mm -hmm. and that's about it. And they had to put in a Netflix distribution center in (laughs) In, your hometown? Yeah, in the small town of Union Bridge, Maryland. But uh, yeah, that's my only real connection. Like, you know, that's a John Hughes movie, and... um, I know that there are people who are like huge John Hughes fans, like, you know, Kevin Smith is an enormous fan of him and homages mm-hmm. him in his work and stuff like that. Yeah. And straight up discusses him within the, the like dialogue in his films. True. And I know that like uh, Breakfast Club, a lot of people hold near and dear in some of those movies, but I never watched those when I was younger. So um, I think Planes, Trains and Automobiles, it might have been the first John Hughes directed movie I ever saw. You know, obviously I watched... Mm. Uh, uh, lots of Home Alone when I was a kid, which was written by him, but mm-hmm. directed by Chris Columbus. But uh, well, here's quickly we'll just touch on John Hughes. He didn't direct much. Eight credits: Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Plain Strains, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, and Curly Sue. Oddly enough. Growing up, I've seen 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's, Uncle Buck. I mean, dozens of times. Just this one is the one that passed me by somewhere. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, he was never like a mainstay for me or or somebody who I took particular notice of, of like, oh, I've watched all these movies by the same person and I like them or him. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that's it's just the way it is. Yeah. I do like Uncle Buck. I've seen that one as well. Love me some Uncle Buck. Big time. Mm-hmm. Well, Millsy, I mean, say, the man of the hour, John Candy. What's your history there? I mean, I mostly knew him. For, I mean, he's he's got cameos in a lot of things. Like, he's got 
small parts and stuff like the Blues Brothers and Little Shop of Horrors, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, Little Shop of Horrors, when I was a young kid, that and Ghostbusters were my two movies that I just watched over and over and over and over and over again. Mm. I was just relating to my mother uh, not too long ago that uh, I had the memory of being a child and watching Little Shop of Horrors because my parents let me watch, you know, not anything I wanted when I was a kid, but for the most part, anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a line in uh, Little Shop of Horrors where Audrey Two, the plant, says the phrase tough titties. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what that meant. So I remember asking my mother as a child what tough titties meant. I don't remember her response, but I was just She reminding... took that movie out of circulation. That was her response. No, no, they didn't care. Well, like, okay. If I saw nudity or violence or cursing when I was a kid, it didn't really matter. I mean, like... I think if there was like hardcore sex in something, but unless there was like an NC-17 movie, which there aren't many of that I mm. would have seen as a kid, mm-hmm. I don't think they really cared. But okay. anyway, yeah, I mostly would have known John Candy uh, from his cameo role in uh, Home Alone, which again, I like all kids, I feel like our age probably watched a ton Yep, uh, when we were younger. And... Um, Cool Runnings, I guess, would be the other thing I mostly Ooh. knew him from, because I was like a, you know, popular family-friendly movie when I was younger. Uh huh. I've got two for sure that are different than yours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for I mentioned Uncle Bunk. Oh, sorry, Uncle Buck. <laughs> watched many times. That was on heavy rotation at the Daxberger House. That's another one I don't think I got around to until like mid two thousands for the first time. The other one would be Spaceballs. Hmm. Watched a shitload of Spaceballs when I was a kid. Yeah, that's one I saw when I was young-ish, but I, we might have talked about this before on here. I'm not typically a big fan of like the parody movie kind of stuff, like um, like Spaceballs. Oh, like Airplane. Or, and, yeah, uh, just you know, nothing wrong with them, just not for me. So mm-hmm. I know at some point I saw Spaceballs, and despite it having like... Rick Moranis, who I loved from like Ghostbusters and Little Shop of Horrors and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and everything. Mm-hmm. The movie didn't do a whole lot for me. Didn't make you guffaw and laughter when they said they were combing the desert and the stormtroopers had a giant comb? Not particularly. It doesn't do no. it for you? Ooh. No. All right. Well, we can't agree on everything, Nils. <laughs> I think the most interested I would have been in that film was John Hurt actually reprising his role <laughs> yeah, yeah. from Alien. Uh-huh. To have that happen all over again to him, but you know, as a kid being a big fan of Alien and Aliens, to then just see them turn the chestburster into like a a little dancing joke, I feel like even at a young age, I wouldn't have been that fond of. <laughs> uh, I know adult Mills ain't having that shit. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. Like I say, I it's just not for me. I'm not like, oh, that movie's a piece of shit. Like it's just. Right. I know from years of experience that those kind of films aren't really for me. Mm-hmm. So, not even Hot Shots Part D. Uh, I've never seen uh, either of the Hot Shots movies. Oh, oh boy! Because I've never had now. much of an interest in in those. Oh boy, let me write this uh, down. <laughs> I've I've never seen uh, uh, what's it called Naked Gun. I've never seen those oh, movies. Come on! I know those aren't straight up parody, but like the slapsticky. That's just never really oh, been na- my thing. Na- Naked Gun is like airplane for sure. A- airplane, Naked Gun, Hot Shots. Yeah, I've never seen. Uh, what's the kind of Lethal Weapon parody one? Uh, uh, 
it's got a name very much like lethal loaded weapon. I've never seen loaded weapon. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know if I've seen those. No, I have. Yeah, is that the one? Because there's one like loaded weapon thirty three and a third or whatever. No, that's that's naked gun. There's oh, naked, that's naked gun, gun, naked gun two and a half, and naked gun thirty three and a third. Okay. And then loaded weapon one. I think the joke was it's the first one, but they called it loaded weapon uh-huh. one. No, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Oh, hold on, Bill. Sorry, I gotta write this stuff down. <laughs> I would be surprised if we don't already have a uh, a theme somewhere in our giant list that's mm. uh, comprised all, of these kind of movies, but all we, slapsticky we may not. and shit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I never was into scary movie. I only ever saw the first one, but I remember seeing it in the theater and just being like, "This ain't for me." The I would say the latter day ones like Scream, Onward, and Don't Be a Menace, and all those don't. Don't hold a candle superhero to the movie and all all those ones when they just started oh, calling them like superhero movie or whatever yeah, movie no. and like I don't yeah epic movie or something those are those are just trash compared to the the good oldies from the eighties <laughs> but fair enough regard regardless um so yeah so for me you got your uncle Buck your space balls for sure um I remember watching um God what is it stripes. A lot when I was a kid. I don't. I haven't seen it in forever, so I know he's in that, but I don't remember if it's a big role or not. That's another one I've seen once, and it was during that those two Netflix years, <laughs> mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So the dearly departed John Candy. He's got a got a good amount of movies. Mm-hmm. Sixty eight credits. You know, and I think uh, did we come up with this trifecta together? No, or this was all you. Was it okay? Because I have a feeling maybe just like rather than just watch, uh, rather than picking Uncle Buck because I've seen it so many times, I was like trying to figure getting stuff I hadn't seen. So sure, and that's how that's how this one worked. That's how the sausage was made on this one. Sometimes people. it's just that easy. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, so do you want to go ahead and dive into our first film here? <sighs> Absolutely. All right. Well, first up from 1985, the year of my birth. We have Brewster's Millions. Don't worry about a thing. I'll take care of everything. I know this kind of stuff. Don't mess up. I smile. Thank you very much. (laughs) Mr. Brewster and Mr. Nolan, you are charged with assault and battery, (laughs) resisting arrest, and destruction of private property. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Oh, guilty, but with a real good excuse. You're going to love it. I think everyone here will. I, I, I plead innocent. <laughs> you, you see, Your Honor, what you have here with Mr. Brewster and myself is a couple of, well, uh, local heroes, really. We, we play for a, a local team here. You might have seen us, the Hackensack Bulls. Perhaps you know the Go You Bulls Go. <laughs> Let's not waste the court's time. I have depositions here from over a dozen eyewitnesses. Your Honor, we went into the bar to have a drink, and we saw this nice lady. And we asked her to sit with us to oh, have sir. a drink. I didn't know she had a fiance. Who knew? Did you know? I didn't know. <laughs> no, I didn't know either. It wasn't public knowledge. So you were making advances to a woman who was clearly involved with another man. You see, if you don't make calls, you don't make any sales. <laughs> this man does not represent me, Your Honor. I would remove that from the court records. I would. I'm going to set your bail at three thousand dollars. Ah, not bad. <laughs> we don't have three thousand dollars, Your Honor. We don't. Bailiff, will you remove the prisoner's next case? So starring Richard Pryor uh, with John Candy and 
at the beginning it felt like the co-lead but he kind of disappears yeah for sure for a fair bit later on in the movie but um Basic premise here being that uh, Richard Pryor and John Candy are members of a like a small time baseball team, mm-hmm. and they get kicked off the team. And then a lawyer comes and gets them out of jail and brings them to New York City. And they basically reveal to Richard Pryor that he has a very distant relative who is dying, and he's like a millionaire. And he wants to leave his money to his only remaining relative, which is Richard Pryor, even though I don't think they've ever met. No. He, but he doesn't just want to give the guy all the money. He wants to kind of make this person earn it. Mm-hmm. And so the stipulation is however many millions and millions of dollars this guy has to teach the person receiving the money, Richard Pryor, to teach him to kind of respect the money. Mm-hmm. He is forcing him to spend $30 million in 30 days. And at the end of those 30 days have nothing to show for it. Like he's not allowed to just like buy expensive cars and have like a bunch of cars. Like he has to throw away $30 million because the logic is just like, I want you to see how hard it is to spend this much money. And at the end of it, I want you to hate money so that you'll like respect it. Mm -hmm. And if he, if he can manage this, then he gets the whole kit and caboodle or he can just take a million dollars and then the rest of the money gets like right. given to the lawyers to spend how they see fit. Mm-hmm. So 300 million. That's what he was potentially getting. Oh, okay. And also and he couldn't tell anyone about the deal. Yeah, he's not allowed to tell anybody about it. There there were a couple different rules cuz of course immediately things are going through my head. Well, this is how I do it. He was yeah. only allowed to gamble away like 5% of it. He was only allowed to charitably donate like 5% of it. So, when you put stipulations like that on it, it really is a little bit of a conundrum like I could spend money all day long, but you'd have stuff to show for it like property mm-hmm. and things. Oh, sure. And then I think there was also a stipulation of, like, you can't just buy things and then give them away. So you, yeah. he's, you're not allowed to just, like, buy expensive diamond rings and give them to some woman. Because otherwise you could be like, okay, I'm going to buy a $10 million house and then just give it away to somebody or something. Yeah, so. easy. I mean, one afternoon in New York City, I mean, you're gonna, you could blow through $30 million. Yeah, so, like... When I first heard the, because I think after you know this episode got chosen, I was like, well, what is this movie after all? And read a plot synopsis, and I remember thinking like, oh, well, that's that'd be simple. But once you hear all the rules and stipulations, some of which yeah. I'm sure we're even forgetting right now, mm-hmm. it really does seem like wow, it would be hard to just disperse that much money. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty high concept for '85 with all the yeah stipulations and everything. Well, now's a good enough time to mention, since you say a pr- pretty high concept for 85, Brewster's Millions is a book, and it has been adapted for film 10 times. What? Yes. For, for film? <laughs> yes, it has been adapted in film 10 times. So uh, I don't know exactly when the book was written, but it was a long time ago. And the amounts of money were changed. Uh, I think originally in the original story, they had to spend a million dollars. But the time period when it was written was before 1914, because that's when the first adaptation was was made. Lord. And that first version of the movie from 1914 has been lost. It doesn't exist anymore as far as we know. 
because there's no remaining film elements from it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's wild. But in English, the film has been, or it has been ma- adapted into a film in 1914, 1921, 1926, 1935, 1945, 1961, and then most recently this one in 1985. And then it has been adapted in film three different times in India as well. Jeez, Millsy, how of all the movies we've watched for Triple Threat, is Brewster's Millions the most popular? I mean, that it's it's weird because like there are movies where there's been like a couple different versions of them, like King Kong, or I know there's four different films of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but mm-hmm. this is one where, yeah, it's been adapted a bunch of times, but most of them are between 1914 and 1961, which are like old Hollywood, and I've never heard of any of them. Like, yeah. If it had been made in like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we'd probably know it. Yeah. But No, like a bunch of World World War One through Vietnam era and some Bollywood action, apparently. Yeah, which I thought was fascinating just because, yeah. I mean, it, it's also weird that it seems like this was a very popular concept for many, many years, like something to make into a movie. And it was probably a lot of those earlier ones about showing extravagance because like during the Depression and stuff, people would go out to the theater from their shitty lives to watch like, oh, look at these beautiful stars and like these extravagant sets and clothes they wear and all this stuff and like these fancy dinner parties that they go to whereas nowadays i mean there's definitely people all over the poverty line Mm -hmm. but the average moviegoer these days i feel like has a you know they got tv so they can watch whatever they want at home and right you got fast food and other shit to like yeah, spend totally. your time on. But it almost feels like an idea that as the years go on, it becomes less and less attractive to turn into a film mm-hmm. or something. Well, maybe? yeah, because now it would have to be like $3 billion. Yeah. you know, And just, I, I don't know, it, it feels like something that the fun of it is similar to this movie, the tactile nature of here's two pallets filled with money. And of course there's ideas of like writing checks and Mm -hmm. I'm assuming at the time, because 85, you know, credit cards and things like that yeah, and bank transfers, but it's all about physically like he's throwing money around. And nowadays Mm -hmm. it would be like, okay, well I'll just PayPal you this and then I'll Mm -hmm. wire transfer that. And I just don't think, and, and like buying stuff online makes it easier too. Oh, yeah. Uh, like now you could just go online to that website Fiverr and pay like 25,000 people five bucks a piece to design you a bunch of logos that you'll never <laughs> use or something like that. Well, you're making it work. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I just don't think it's as appealing or as fun of an idea anymore. So Yeah, no, certainly. Because someone could do it from their couch. Yeah. And yeah, not that I think Brewster's Millions is like an all-time classic or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that a lot more people probably know that movie than any of the previous incarnations, and it might be a case of, like, well, they did it already with Richard Pryor. Like, yeah, what's really the need of doing it again? I think I think you kind of nail it. Like, hit the nail right in the head where it's, it makes more sense in the 80s. just seems more interesting. Mm-hmm. Somebody, I'm, not, I'm surprised somebody hasn't tried, but... Yeah, I am a little as well, but I can kind of understand. I can see where someone would be coming from not attempting yeah. to do this premise again. Mm-hmm. I concur. Plus, it's been enough, done enough times already anyway, right. so... Back to John Candy, what did you think of him in this? Well, he's not in this one a ton. Uh, in the first act, when it's like him and Richard Pryor buddying around all the time, he's in it a fair amount. But then as soon as Richard Pryor has the money and like... 
it, it becomes all about just like the stress that's on Richard Pryor trying to do this. And there's like a little budding romantic relationship and just all the ins and outs of his situation, which really John Candy's his friend, but he's not directly involved with it for the most part. Right. Yeah, he kind of disappears for the, from the movie for quite a while and stops being like an important character. But, mm-hmm. you know, I thought he was fine. He's like the best friend character, so he doesn't have a ton to do. Right. He did get to show up in that wild looking suit with a big, uh, he had a gold medallion there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty funny. I gotta, I gotta laugh out of that. But yeah, his character is mostly relegated to like, I'm another small time guy who's never really had any money and like, oh, now right. look, we have all this cash. Like, but you don't spend time getting into, like, with Richard Pryor's character. He's torn because he's not allowed to tell anybody and everybody wants to know why he's doing this and wants to give him advice. And he he's not allowed to tell anybody why he's doing it. He's also not allowed to tell anybody that he's doing it like Mm -hmm. he can spend the money all day long any way he wants. But people are trying to help him and like help him manage his finances or help him not lose money. And he doesn't want them to do that, but he can't tell them that because he can't let on what he's doing. So there's just a lot more interesting stuff going on with Richard Pryor than like mm-hmm. John Candy spending some cash. John Candy does uh, what he invests some money, yeah, and gets Again, him he some tries money to back, help, which but yeah, tries to help and that backfires. Doesn't realize he's actually hurting. Yeah, so it, it's I, I mean, for the movie itself, it, I mean, it does a fine job of like kind of keeping the story moving, you mm-hmm. know, with the spending. I mean, it makes sense. It's it. I guess me, if it was me in that situation, I'd have the tons of questions about like what I could and could not spend this money on. Yeah. You've got like the corporate bad guy lawyers who are like, oh, well, we'll just, uh, we'll force, we'll, we'll hire somebody to screw, his name's Montgomery Brewster. We'll hire someone to screw Brewster over and like keep $20,000 aside that he can't spend so that there's like a loophole and we'll get the money after all. But it's like, I mean, with all those little stipulations and things, it would probably be super easy to find that he screwed up 20 times just himself trying to spend the money. Right. Right. It's just, you know, you feel you play fast and loose with the rules about, you know, can if you tip a taxi driver 10 grand, like, is that charity or not? You know? Yeah, for sure. Cause that's what he, that's the first thing he starts to do is he like hires his own private security service. And he's just like, I'm going to pay you guys obnoxious amounts of money. And it's like, I mean, right. If, if you're allowed to do like you said and hire a taxi driver for $10,000, what's to keep you from saying, I'm going to hire this taxi driver for $10 million. And now you're a third of the way to your goal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm the same way where, like, I was able to watch this movie and let some of those nitpicky things go just because of the type of movie it is. Mm -hmm. But if this movie tried to take itself any more seriously than it does, I would have been losing my mind, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. Because it is fast and loose. I mean, it is a comedy first. Yeah, you do. You do can get wrapped up in the rules movies set for themselves, so. I really can. Yes, I know that of you, <laughs> and I appreciate that. But yeah, I'm I'm right there with you though. It's like for the it's almost like for the time period you let it go because I feel like they just weren't thinking about how crazy movie fans would get when it comes to this stuff later yeah. in, in the game. Well, it's funny. Like I feel like I I've always had trouble kind of expressing 
that opinion, but what you just said, I feel like is the case for a lot of older movies, especially older comedies where it's just like, it didn't feel like they cared about making the most sense or mm -hmm. like plot flow and things like oh, that. Yeah. Cause I've always talked about like back in the day, it felt like if you wanted to make a comedy, you would just like, you know, Harold Ramis would walk into a boardroom and say like, I want to make another comedy. And the, the executive would be like, okay, well, uh, what do you want to make? And Harold Ramis would say like, I don't know. How about, uh, like something on a golf course and the executive would say, okay, go. Mm -hmm. And then they would just like hire a bunch of people to write random scenes that take place on a golf course, like kind of stitch them together, but not really. And then all of a sudden you have Caddyshack and it either succeeds based on the people involved or it doesn't. And we all forget about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's still some dumb comedies made like that today, but these days it feels like there's much more of a, emphasis on uh plot flow and a little bit of yeah. logic when it comes to like the high concepts in movies like this one mm -hmm. and it's funny i've always kind of quietly criticized people like uh red letter media and cinema sins and like the people who do the youtube videos that are like uh everything wrong with whatever movie in 15 minutes or whatever right because I feel like, and I've seen some other people expressing this online recently as well. Not to say that I'm right. And like, if people enjoy those videos, like that's fine. But I don't personally like them because I feel like they're kind of building up this, this kind of mind frame that people have now where like, you can point out the simplest little flaw or like logic problem with something. And then people want to tear an entire movie down because of it mm -hmm. or it's, it's almost like tropes are bad these days. Like, those videos can very easily say, this is just like this other thing. And like, yes, tropes are a thing. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. But they're not always bad. And in fact, most of the time, I think with movies, they're good. And I think that you can't make comedies like this anymore because these days people are, like, hyper-vigilant. And oh, yeah. with, you know, the internet and everybody having their say about things and, you know, being able to go and, and mass affect things like a, a Rotten Tomatoes score and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I feel like everybody has their two cents in whether or not it's thought out in advance. Mm -hmm. It's just like potentially having a negative effect, not necessarily on the movie industry itself. Cause that's kind of grandiose, but the public consciousness of what's good and bad in movies. Mm -hmm. Totally. So I mean, if this came out today and it was Kevin Hart and Jack Black, there'd be many a internet article about the breakdown of his spending and yeah, for sure. If it adds up or not, which is a fun thing to talk about. Like we're doing it right here, just like for conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's when you suddenly get like all of these websites that are just desperate for content and. So, like, there's just headlines abound of, like, here's the 10 things wrong with this movie. Or mm -hmm. just the other day, uh, I was looking on Twitter, and I follow, like, comic book resources and some other, like, entertainment news sites. And I don't – there's probably a couple people out there who aren't fans of Endgame and think that Avengers Age of Ultron is a better movie. But I think it was comic book resources published an article that was, like – Avengers Age of Ultron is a way better movie than Endgame. Wait, wait, hear us out. 
And it's like, that's just clickbait shit and people yeah. dive in there and then they get in the comments. And mm-hmm. I just feel like not to say that I know what's right or that I'm better than anybody or that I'm doing it right or anything like that. Cause we're just like everybody else throwing our voices out into the ether. But I feel like movie criticism has kind of become a bit of a laughing stock these days. Mm. I would uh, listen to your Ted talk, <laughs> but that's just to say that I feel like movies like this get a pass these days where modern movies don't because these are totally. like antiquated and people figure like, oh, well, Brewster's Millions didn't just come out and there's nothing like super controversial about it that I can say online. So why bother picking it apart when I can just wait for whatever the next Jack Black or Kevin Hart movie is? And then try and make my voice heard over some dumb thing or a reference that wasn't correct or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm with you. I don't watch those things. I don't care. Like, it's just another thing on the internet now for me. But, yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah. And, you know, long story short, when it comes to stuff like Red Letter Media and all those guys – uh, they only continue to make those movies or those uh, videos on YouTube and gain popularity because people like them. So yeah. it's I'm not saying like they're doing anything wrong necessarily, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to say that anybody shouldn't like them. Like watch whatever the fuck you want. It's YouTube and the internet. But that's personally why I'm not the biggest fan of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So in summary, the internet is a hellhole. Is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're breaking any big news to people here saying that, no, but <laughs> no. as we record a podcast <laughs> to release on the internet for people yeah. to listen to us talking about a movie from 1985, it's a hell. It's a hellhole. I swim in for hours every day. <laughs> so yeah, in other words, we're big hypocrites. But yeah, totally. But hey, but yeah, I so be it. You know, if a movie like this came out today, I think that the writers would have to work a lot harder than they potentially did on this version. And I think that uh, some harsh criticism would probably be lying in wait for them. I concur. Yeah, interesting thing about this movie, uh, I was surprised when I saw his name pop up on screen. Walter Hill directed this film. Do you know who that is? Uh, Nope. He's the guy who gave us The Warriors, for example. Oh, uh, he's mostly directed like macho kind of action movies in his career. He did the Bruce Willis movie, The Last Stand. The closest other thing to a comedy that I think he really has done is he directed the 48 Hours movies. OK, all right. Which did have like Eddie Murphy in like a humorous role, but um, were more like straight up action kind of buddy comedies than anything. OK. And yeah, it's just like I feel like Walter Hill just knowing him and knowing the kinds of movies he's made like he made Streets of Fire I feel like he's just like a very macho kind of director and it was weird to see his name pop up on a you know generic-ish middle of the road mainstream comedy like this oh man you know what Walter Hill directed Hmm. 1986 Crossroads (laughs) Ralph Macchio plays a guitar against the old scratch the devil yeah that movie's awesome. I think he also did a movie called Southern Comfort, which is about like Vietnam vets versus hillbillies in the bayou or something like that. Like, oh, man. yeah. Anyway, he's I, I originally heard his name because he's one of the three producers of the Alien franchise. Mm-hmm. Gordon Carroll, David Geiler and Walter Hill are like the three dudes who produced all the Alien movies. And it's generally considered fact that. 
Walter Hill is the reason that Ash was an android in the first Alien. Like, apparently that was not in the original script, and it was a suggestion by one of those three producers, if not Walter Hill, that they make him an android. Interesting. But yeah, also director, like I say, he's directed some westerns and stuff, and so this movie just kind of feels like it sticks out like a sore thumb in his filmography. But Millsy, I have a quick question for you. Uh-huh. Do you think Walter Hill had any idea that by creating androids in the alien universe that it would lead to androids making creating the, the alien if you yeah. buy into alien covenant uh i sure hope not otherwise the hit squad will be out for him soon uh, Millsy, i don't know if there's any buying into a thing that is movie fact from a movie made by the creator of said movie uh and- I refuse to <laughs> call Ridley Scott the quote-unquote creator of Alien. Uh, he directed the film that was written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chassette. Uh, but, yeah. This is me no. just kerosening everything and just lighting the match. <laughs> yeah. Do you really want to go down this road on the John Candy episode? <laughs> I mean, we can talk Alien at some point and really get into it if you want. Oh, boy. But, um... So yeah, as a free as a free thinking human with free will, I have the ability to choose not to recognize Alien Covenant or Prometheus as part of the Alien franchise. And hell, I may even throw Alien Resurrection in there too. But oh, anyway, I have to save that for another episode. <laughs> John Candy is not in any of those movies, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately, fun fact: Peter Bogdanovich was going to make this movie before Walter Hill got involved, and he wanted the lead to be John Ritter. Interesting. Yeah, you got Pat Hengel in there, the original, well, not original, but the um, Commissioner Gordon from the mm. Tim Burton Batman movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of the nice guy, third-party lawyer who helps out. Yes, yes. Richard Jay Carter, Orbach yeah. was in there mm-hmm. as the uh, baseball coach. Mm-hmm. I saw, okay, so I'm watching the movie, and one of the early-ish scenes after Richard Pryor has the money and it's just like people fucking everywhere, like everybody's hanging on to him and wanting to be a part of his life because he's got all this money he's throwing around. And they have a character in a scene who, for no good reason, he's like, hey, uh, I'm here to get paid to just repeat everything you say. Do you remember oh, that? Yes. Is it that was, uh, Rick Moranis? It was Rick Moranis. Okay, because the whole scene took place, and I was thinking to myself, this guy looks really familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on who it was. And then after the fact, watching the, the credits at the end, I saw Rick Moranis played someone named Morty King, and I was like, could that have been him? Yeah. And I never went back and looked at him again, but I don't know how I could have looked Rick Moranis in the face that long in the movie and not actually realized it was him, because I'm a fan of him. But yeah, uh-huh. he's in there too. Yeah, that was, and he was only in like that one scene too. Yeah. Well, it seems like just like a throwaway fun joke. Like, I know he's friends with John Candy and they both, you know, were in the SCTV scene in Mm. Canada back in the day. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of betting it was just like, hey, he's in Hollywood and I'm friends with him. Let's toss him in a scene because, you know, people recognize him. It'll be funny. Right. But, uh, I'll say who I really liked in the movie, but I didn't really know who she was and I still don't is, uh, Lonette McKee as Angela Drake, the kind of sort of love interest. I mean, it's never really expounded upon because she's got a fiance. And I kind of like the fact that they don't push like a love story too hard in this. And it's just the comedy, you know? Right. 
But there's like obviously Richard Pryor's interested in her, and at the end she helps him, and you can see like something might happen there. But yeah, she she actually does some of like the I don't know uh, dramatic or emotional like heavy lifting. Really, she really is the straight man of the movie. Yeah, for sure. Because like everybody around Richard Pryor is just like goofballs going crazy. Uh, Richard Pryor is in a manner of speaking, the straight man himself. Cause he's the only one who really knows what's going on, but I mean, he's involved in all the lunacy. Yeah. But yeah. So she's the one who the lawyer, she works for the lawyers who are in charge of the money that Richard Pryor is trying to get. And she's basically like a, she's like the auditor or the accountant. She's got to keep track. Yeah. So she's the one he has to give all his receipts to, to prove that he's spending the money the way he's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was a point in the middle of the movie just pertaining to how he's spending the money where after John Candy accidentally like wins him back all the money that he lost, I was like, man, how are they going to get him out of this? And then out of the blue, the uh, the mayoral campaign popped up and I was like, that's actually a brilliant twist mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he runs good. for uh, mayor because I know nothing about politics, but I know from watching movies and TV that characters in those always say that like... Uh, running a campaign, like a political campaign, is just a flushing money down the toilet. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I thought that was interesting. Uh-huh. Fun idea. Yeah. No, they, they came up with like with decent ways of spending the money. I mean, I still found myself throughout like with plenty of questions, but yeah. Like we already said, you kind of just because of what it is and when, it, when it's from, you just look kind of let it go. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, all in all, you know, enjoyable movie, not one of my new favorites or anything. And it is a little problematic if you think about it too hard, but mm-hmm. <laughs> as just like a fun kind of whirlwind of a film, I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And, uh, yep. I'm not like super well-versed in Richard Pryor, to be honest. And, uh, I, so I really enjoyed watching him as a lead in this because I haven't seen much that he's in personally. Yeah. F- for me, as far as with him, Another one like I grew up on that we had like taped at the house and used to watch all the time was The Toy. Mm-hmm. That's one of the only other movies with him I've seen. Yeah, I mean he's got, I you know he's been in a bunch, but really for me, The Toy uh, was high up there. Mm-hmm. As far as um, things I've seen. Yeah, yeah, off the top of my head, The Toy. Like up until now, up and now I can say Brewster's Millions, but up until now, The Toy might be the only like movie with a significant Richard Pryor role in it that I've seen that I can think of. Like I haven't even seen Superman three, which he's in. Yeah, I haven't either. So maybe we huh. need a Richard Pryor trio down the road. Okay. Get your notebook so, out. Yeah, I got so I got slapsticky, hot shot, etc. I got a Walter <laughs> Hill trifecta. Oh. And some uh, Pryor <laughs> One of these days, uh, next time I visit, I gotta you gotta let me see this notebook. Let's <laughs> see all the fucking. Oh no, there's, there's sticky notes that are covering my oh, monitor now. Like, oh yeah, like when we first started doing the podcast, you would do you would do that. Like I'd mention something, and then you'd kind of get quiet for a minute and go like, you know, uh, whatever trio. And I <laughs> thought it was like a bit you were doing, like just a joke. But as time's going on, I've realized like, no, he's actually writing these down. <laughs> I. For sure, right now. Currently on my iMac, I have two, three. I already have four stuck to my monitor of various ideas. Wow. And I got a fifth going. Yeah, I got to check those out sometime. There is a book. There is a book as well. But yeah, once I found some small sticky notes, I've gone that route. Nice. 
Yeah, man. Just never stops around here. The <laughs> triple threat world keeps turning. That's how it goes. All right. Well, anything else to say about Brewster's Millions, or shall we move on? Let's move on. All right. Next up, two years later, in 1987, we have Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I know you, don't I? I'm usually very good with names, but I'll be damned if I haven't forgotten yours. You stole my cab. <laughs> I've never stole anything in my life. I hailed a cab on Park Avenue this afternoon, and uh, before I could get in it, you stole it. You're the guy who tried to get my cab. <laughs> I knew I knew you, yeah. You scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> Come to think of it, it was awful easy to get a cab during rush hour. Forget it. Oh, I can't forget it. I am sorry. I had no idea that was your cab. Let me make it up to you somehow, huh, please? How about a nice hot dog and a beer? Uh, no, thanks. Just a hot dog, then. I'm kind of picky about what I eat. Some coffee? No. Milk? No. Soda? No. Some tea? No. Lifesavers? No. Slurpee? Sir, please. Just let me know. I'm here. <laughs> I knew I knew you. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, I had seen this one before. It had been long enough that I basically remembered what happened, but I didn't remember all of the, the finer points, so... Mm-hmm. This was like 85% of a first-time watch for me, in a manner of speaking. I like it. Basic premise here is that Steve Martin is a high-strung, big-money ad executive guy, and he's in New York. Uh, Where does he have to get back to? Where does he live? Do you remember? Chicago. So he's got to get back to Chicago. It's like four days or two days maybe before Thanksgiving, and he's promised his family he'll be home for Thanksgiving. And uh, he just... It's one of those movies where, like, he is the high-strung kind of jerk, mm-hmm. and you just watch life pummel him into yeah. a fine powder as right. he tries to get home and everything goes mm-hmm. wrong. There's, like, bad weather and flights get canceled, and mm-hmm. the whole time, uh, from the minute he left his office trying to get to the airport on time to get his flight home, he has been bumping into John Candy's character, who is just like a nice kind of Southern hospitality, pleasant, but a little bit of a doofus. And, you know, he talks too much and he's a little obnoxious. Yeah. Traveling uh, shower curtain ring salesman. Yeah. And uh, just by chance and fate, the two of them kind of get stuck together through a series of ridiculous circumstances over the course of a couple days trying to get to Chicago. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those things where it all gets set off. If like if Steve Martin just was able to get a cab during rush hour, it never would have happened. Mm-hmm. So when you just got like that one, that one little bit that just throws everything, throws a curveball on everything. I kind of love it. Yeah, it's a pretty simple premise for a movie. I want to say I read that uh, John Hughes he based the movie on like an actual situation where he had like a bad time traveling or no, he got stuck in um, what's the airport that they get stuck at when like their, their flight lands initially and they're stuck in like a small town uh, boy, uh, wherever that is. I don't remember the yeah. name. I read that he actually got Wichita, st- 
Wichita. He actually got stuck in that airport like while traveling. And then mm-hmm. that like spawned the whole idea for this movie was just him mm-hmm. like sitting in an airport stewing. Yeah. Simple enough. Yeah. Yeah, but very, but then it gets crazy because when he was just supposed to fly to Chicago from New York, according to the internet, which they end up taking a flight to Wichita. Yeah, the plane gets diverted to Wichita, and then everybody's stuck there because of the storm. Mm-hmm. Next up is a train. Yeah, it goes flight, train, bus, rental car, milk truck. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. So this was your first time watching it. Uh, what did you was, think of the film? I mean, I did. I did find myself laughing quite a bit. You know, um, I just even from like I said before, Spaceballs, Uncle Buck. I've always thought John Candy was funny. He's just got like a natural charisma. Like I don't know, he's just like a the jokey uncle or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always kind of had that for me. I mean, even him in Home Alone, mm-hmm. same thing. So. I just like really enjoyed them playing off of each other. The two, they played both of their like archetypes well mm-hmm. with, I mean, Steve Martin can play like a high, strong, like teetering on the edge, pissed off guy the whole time. And then, you know, John Candy just plays like that, like affable, just kind of huggy bear, go with the <laughs> flow. Like, well, you know, what are you so stressed about? Which only makes a stressed out person that much more stressed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had a um I had to write it down cuz I just I thought it was hilarious when there's a point where after the flight John Candy gets a hotel room that he ends up sharing with Steve Martin and god what happens Billy I think he what did he get John Candy gets Steve Martin's side of the bed wet from something Yeah he uh, so they get into the room and John Candy asks if Steve Martin wants to take a shower and he lets John Candy go first. So then he goes in and he takes a shower and when he goes to towel off, the only thing that's still dry is a like a washcloth. And, <laughs> right. you know, I, I can sympathize with Steve Martin in this scenario because I'm not like a germaphobe or anything, but I am uh, like looking out of the shower like Steve Martin does and seeing just all the towels are like wet in piles on the floor everywhere from John Candy making a mess. And like his uh-huh. shit is just spread all over the counter. And uh-huh. like when he, when uh, Steve Martin steps out of the shower, it's like puddles on the floor and he's trying to do like tippy toes. Cause he doesn't want to put his whole foot down in these cold puddles. Like that's kind of me. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Let me make a note of that. Yeah. To a degree. So I sympathized with that. And then so he finally gets out of the shower or out of the bathroom and John Candy has spilled beer on Uh. Steve Martin's (laughs) side of the bed. So he has to sleep in beer. Uh. Yeah, he doesn't even like say like, oh, I'm the one that spilled it. Let me sleep in the beer. It's like, oh, no, that's still your side. Yeah. And it's just, you know, they play it up all the annoying things like... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, like just all the fidgeting and stuff that he does, and he doesn't know when to shut up. Like he just does not have that part of his right. brain that tells him like this person doesn't want to talk right now. And <laughs> right. the stranger I just met. Yeah, and they're like laying in bed, uh, about to go to sleep, and John Candy has to like clear his sinuses, so he's making all these snorting noises and <laughs> like all things where it's like he's not trying to be an asshole. He's just kind of oblivious. Yeah, and Steve Martin is a similar to me in some ways. <laughs> Hyper vigilant. So. 
We'll see if I had it. Yes. I never would have thought it would be Steve Martin in plain strains that you you have most in common with. I mean, if it, I like if it. there was like a Venn diagram of John Candy's type of character and Steve Martin's type of character, I personally feel I am way on the Steve Martin <laughs> side. I'd like to think I'm not that high strong and like short fused, but uh-huh. uh, some of his personality traits I definitely saw I more it. of myself in. So when he finally explodes on John Candy, there was this one line that made me like howl in laughter that I had to write it down. It was so funny. So what he's yelling at him and he goes, he's yelling at John Candy. He tells him, you're not even amusing accidentally. <laughs> which <laughs> I was dying. I was like, oh, that is so good. Not even amusing accidentally is like, see, if you want to chop someone down, like that's one way of going about it for sure. I mean, as annoying as John Candy's character is, you feel bad for him in that moment because Steve Martin like goes off on him. And it's not the kind of thing where he's so furious that he's just like, you fucking asshole, you're so fucking annoying or anything. He's like literally laying out like these things that almost cut more deep because you can tell how much he means them and how (laughs) true John Candy potentially even realizes they are as he's saying them. But oh, the look on John Candy's face when he's done yelling at him and his response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Seriously. Such a good actor. Honestly, tense. (laughs) In that scene. Extremely. Like, both of them were great in that scene. I was like, I was eating it up at that point. Mm-hmm. I was like, I think even at that point, I was like, oh, I get it. I was like, yes, I understand this movie. Like, yes, this is why people love it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, it's just like, it's a classic one of these road movie comedies, kind of like uh, uh, Dumb and Dumber or um, oh, what's the other one that I was thinking of? Um constantly moving along and there's just endless opportunities for more silly scenarios for the characters Mm -hmm. to get stuck in you know oh tommy boy that's the other one i was thinking of yeah of course just where you put two people like in this or in tommy boy who don't really get along and jive and then like watch the progression of them losing their minds around each other or, you know, honestly, I know you're not going to get this one, as we've discussed before. You're not familiar with this movie. I got to get it in a trio so I can force you to watch it. But uh, mm. a goofy movie is one of those oh, as well. Wow. Often mentioned. Yeah. The goofy movie. I mean, it's very similar to this where it's, you know, Goofy is forcing his son Max to go on this road trip with him. And Goofy is goofy. He's kind of like nerdy and his mm-hmm. son is like too cool for him and, you know. There's a lot of like uh, personality clashing there, and it's a yeah. road trip film. So, uh, I think I just kind of like that sort of movie in general. Like that's a easy, not an easy win, but it's an easy foot in the door for me. I think. Yeah, that, that kind of movie. Hmm. I can dig it. Yeah, it's it's plenty of opportunity. Hmm. And in the realm of something like Dumb and Dumber, where eventually like things get so bad that it's like the two of them are squeezed onto that little scooter and then they're like frozen together because it's so cold or in Tommy boy, the way the car just is falling apart as the movie goes along with like the deer in the back seat and then the the door (laughs) getting ripped off and everything like Uh by the end of this movie, the state that that fucking car is in that they're driving, it's entirely the rental rental car even. Yeah. Oh man. That was hilarious. That John John Candy like used his credit, used uh, Steve Martin's credit card without telling him. Yeah, and then <laughs> snuck it back into Steve Martin's wallet, which then got burned up in the car. Burned to the fire. So yeah, the scene where he's trying to rent a room with his fucking torched credit cards, that was really good. 
Oh, it's so good. It's just it's a it's very cartoony, but it's a great mm-hmm. build up of just like how yeah miserable the and infuriating the situation gets as it goes along. Like yeah. one of the best parts is one of the simpler ones when uh, Steve Martin finally like gets away from John Candy and tries to rent a car for himself, oh. and he gets dropped off by like oh, the shuttle bus. So like a mile from the fucking rental facility and the car's missing. And then he's got to <laughs> trudge back along the highway yeah. in the snow. Dude, he drops so many F-bombs yeah. to this car rental lady. It's like a work of art. Yeah, so I believe there were 17 F-bombs in that scene alone, 16 of which would have been Steve Martin. And I read <laughs> that if that scene were not in the movie, it would have gotten a PG-13. <laughs> I love <laughs> because it. that's like the only scene that has anything yeah. like outwardly offensive. Uh huh. But it's um, worth it though. It's he's so good. It was apparently he's such a, a good scene. actor. Yeah, that's a great sequence. And that woman that he yells at. Oh god, mm-hmm. she's just another like John. She's like the female version of John Candy in this movie. <laughs> just like you know, kind of oblivious, but uh-huh. just like well-meaning and just nice in general, but right. just not the kind of person that would jive with. Uh, Steve Martin's. Yeah. But apparently Steve Martin loved that scene so much in the script that uh, they decided to keep it in and give the movie an R rating just because mm-hmm. of that scene, because they all thought it was so funny. It's hilarious. I mean, for me to watch it for the first time was, A, wasn't expect. I didn't even realize this was rated R. Mm-hmm. So once I got to that scene, I was like, holy shit, this is like amazing. <laughs> I was dying laughing. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else about the movie. There's no like excessive cursing elsewhere. There's no nudity. There's, yeah, none of that. There's no, like, mm-hmm. super violence or anything. It's all, yeah. like, cartoony stuff, but. I mean, that had me dying. I'll say, this will make sense to you, Milzy, I know. Um, there's one scene that I had to, like, go on the internet and, like, get a gif of just to keep on my phone so I can watch it, watch it and give myself a chuckle. Mm-hmm. Is when they're driving, and they're on the wrong side of the road, they go between those two trucks. Yep. In the rental car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like those quick cuts and the two of them are like are replaced with skeletons <laughs> and then it's John Candy as the devil. Uh-huh. No, I've definitely seen that John Candy as the devil meme around oh, the internet a lot. I was dying cuz you know just who to thunk it'd be something I'd love so much is like the <laughs> replacing an actor with a skeleton just like in uh Hobolo 2. Mm-hmm. But between this and that I was dying. Yeah, that's just the kind of movie this is from that era where they would still do stuff like that. Yeah. Like, nowadays, you could even do it with CG, but this is like, they had to get some skeletons <laughs> and, like, film that scene and edit it together. It's just, I love that. Yeah. Uh, I just love this era of movie making. It's, just, it's like it's like edited and cut so perfect, so quick. Like, you blink and you miss the uh, skeletons, because I actually did. I, it happened so quick that I missed it and that I was dying laughing on the couch. And Megan watched this with me. And she's like, did you see that? And I was like, what? And she's like, you got to rewind it. And sure enough, because she knows I love that part from Home Alone 2. <laughs> so as soon as I was, di- I was like already dying laughing. And then from that was even more like blinking. You miss it. it was so funny. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, we need to start a whole nother podcast to go on about like the current state of comedic movies maybe because they just don't they don't match the 80s and 90s ones at all but i fucking loved it yeah dying laughing this is great i feel like you don't see stuff quite like that anymore 
for sure. Bring it back, please, Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Do it. Something interesting about this movie, uh, the original cut after it was filmed and edited was three hours and 40 minutes long. Whoa. Holy shit. Apparently, they just went bananas, just like uh, John Hughes had like too many good ideas for like stuff in this movie. So it was originally super long. And the one thing that I really feel like is an indicator of that after the fact is, uh, so Michael McKean is in the movie. He's another one of these like old school comedy guys. I'm pretty sure he was on uh, Saturday Night Live back in the day. Uh, he's part of Christopher Guest's crew that's always in those like mockumentary movies he makes. Okay. And most recently, he plays uh, Bob Odenkirk's brother on the first three seasons of Better Call Saul in the dramatic role, which he's really good in. Mm-hmm. But um, he plays the police officer who pulls him over and impounds the car that's all burned up. It's like oh, one okay. short little scene. It's maybe like a minute long. Mm-hmm. But I remember, like like I said, I when I watched the movie, it had been so long that I forgot a lot of it. And so I didn't remember Michael McKean is in it. And in the opening credits, Michael McKean's name is there. And there's other supporting characters who are in the movie more than Michael McKean. And I was thinking, like, why is his name in the opening credits like that? But apparently there was a significantly longer sequence involving the police officer and, like, I don't know if he had to, like, chase them and... Like, that's one of the scenes that they inevitably were like, we have to get rid of it. And they actually brought Michael McKean back to refilm the little bit that he's in the movie. And then they just decided to let him still have that credit, even though he's hardly in it because of all the work that he put in on the movie, which is kind of neat. But that's the only thing that really indicates to me that there's anything missing. I I mean, a three-hour and 40-minute comedy sounds kind of like hell, but (laughs) I'd be curious to know what else is missing. Yeah. They they have so much chemistry together, so it's like yeah, if you're filming and like you just want to keep going, I mean, I can see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of movie to sit through, but yeah, I mean, as is go. the movie's only an hour and thirty three minutes long. <laughs> they yeah. had three hours and forty minutes, <laughs> so they cut it down to a two hour uh, cut for test screenings, and then based on what the test screenings said, they took it down to an hour thirty three. And, you know, I could watch more of the movie, but, Mm. you know, two hours might be capping off what I really want from a comedy. Yeah. Did you read who John Hughes uh, first wanted in the two lead roles? No, sir. Tom Hanks and John Travolta. (laughs) Oh. I could easily see Tom Hanks playing the uh, Steve Martin role. Yeah. John Travolta, I find tough to imagine. No, I don't see that. As Del Griffith, <laughs> the yeah, sh- yeah. Uh, shower ring, the shower curtain the ring shower salesman. salesman. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, this is certainly one that's like, I couldn't imagine anyone other than John Candy. Flat out. Yeah, at this point, 100%. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people would lean towards this as, like, one of his career-defining roles. Yeah, for sure. It's got to be. Because he does play a lot of these. Even like his character in Home Alone is like a kind of annoying guy. He's part of like a polka music group, but at the same time, he's like a sweetheart. Right. I feel same like, thing. I feel like he played those characters a lot. Yeah, totally. I mean, I could see like, a, I feel like people say they watch this around Thanksgiving a lot. Like I could see that. Yeah, I've always heard that being. because it's like there's a billion movies about Christmas, but then how many movies are there that are Thanksgiving movies? And mm-hmm. this is like hardly a Thanksgiving movie, but yeah, 
It's it's like almost a MacGuffin, but yeah, like I'm a little amazed that it wasn't about him trying to get home for Christmas, yeah, rather than Thanksgiving, just because that seems like it'd be the go-to. Mm-hmm. Same time of year, they wanted the snow and the bad weather and everything. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if the reason for that though isn't you know the movie has like a kind of sappy sentimental ending, mm-hmm. and the whole thing is about like understanding and coming together like which is the yeah. whole idea of Thanksgiving in the first place. That's probably why now that I yeah. think about it for three point five seconds. I mean, I loved that. I'm big softy anyway, so I loved that yeah. ending. You know, because mm-hmm. it's it almost helps when it, it it grounds a movie rather than it being like totally slapsticky and shit. If you can. Mm-hmm. For sure. You know, bring in some heart. I got no problem with that. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Movie did relatively well. 49.5 million take off of a $30 million budget. Apparently that budget was so high just because of the absolutely ridiculous amount of filming they did as well. I was just going to say, that sounds like a lot for Cause like, this time. But... Once upon a time, you know, when everything was, fi- was shot on film, like film was never cheap and... So that's that's one of the reasons that, you know, studios have schedules and producers to keep an eye on this stuff. And especially back in the day, like you don't want to go over and you're shooting too much or you're having to pay out the ass for more Mm. like physical film. And apparently John Hughes just went super over budget on like days and reshoots and the amount of film that he was using. Yeah. I mean, good thing I made money, but yeah, it sounds like a lot for Mm -hmm. the year and the kind of movie, but. I mean, they only probably had to blow up so many rental cars, right? Can't cost that much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, aside from Michael McKean, you got Kevin Bacon in there in one scene with no oh, lines. Yeah, as that was good. The guy yeah. who races Steve Martin for Taxi, yeah. which is pretty good. He played like a good evil-looking prick. Mm-hmm. Well, that was kind of neat. And the other one, I, you know, you see this guy's face. You stare at him for a minute or two in the movie. And kind of similar to Rick Moranis in Brewster's Millions, when the movie ended and I saw his name in the credits, I was like, who the fuck did he play? Do you know who Dylan Baker is? No. He was... Well, I probably do, but I don't know. The right thing now. you'd probably recognize him from is he played Dr. Connors in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies who would have become the lizard. Oh, okay. He is the guy like the redneck disgusting guy who shows up to drive them in the pickup truck who like spits in his hand and shakes <laughs> yeah. Steve Martin's hand. Uh-huh. I even going back and look at pictures of him. I'm like, a, he looks older than he does now because of the weird fucking face that he's making. But B, like uh-huh. I cannot just, I can't tell that's him at all. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's a good catch. Fucking Dylan Baker. I again, I saw his name in the credits. I was like, who the fuck did he play? <laughs> And I just did that thing where I Googled Dylan Baker, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and that picture popped up, and I was like, that was him? That guy just sitting around be like, man, I was supposed to be the lizard. (laughs) Yeah. It's too bad. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think uh, that's about all I got for this one. Yeah. I hear you. Let's uh, carry on. All right. Third and final film, once again, jumping two years into the future. 1989, we have Who's Harry Crumb? Uh, Detective Casey. I'd like you to meet uh, Harry Crumb. I know you by reputation. My reputation precedes me. Otherwise, I'd be late for all my appointments. <laughs> Harry Crumb. You know, Mr. Downing, I have a lot of experience in these matters. And over the years, I've developed a theory about private detectives. They're slime. 
And without exception, they are lazy, stupid, cowardly, arrogant, and thoroughly incompetent. It's just a theory. <laughs> John Candy co-starred in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. However, if I had to choose, I would say that Steve Martin was the main character of that movie. Yeah, I'd say he's top build. And... I mean, he's the one you're following from the beginning and everything. Mm-hmm. And obviously, John Candy is a supporting role in uh, Brewster's Millions. Most of the stuff I can think of him from, like the little cameos and things, or playing the Chewbacca character in uh, in Spaceballs or mm-hmm. Home Alone, or even Cool Runnings. He's not the main character. He's like the supporting character who's the coach for the main characters. It feels like he didn't play a ton of leads in things. No. But this is straight up a John Candy vehicle who's Harry Crumb. For sure. This would probably be the most slapsticky movie we have. I would describe this as kind of either John Candy's Ace Ventura or John Candy's Fletch. Probably closer to Fletch. I've not seen Fletch. I understand that reference. <laughs> um, but yeah. The actual using makes a lot of sense for me to be Ace Ventura. Yeah. It feels a lot like that where like one character in particular is like over the top slapstick. Yeah. Like lead character. It's kind of a a mystery. He's like a detective, just like, you know, Ace Ventura pet detective. Mm -hmm. But then same thing with Fletch. He's like a private eye, I think. Yeah. And the, the comparable thing for Fletch is that the whole idea of that movie is that, uh, uh, Chevy Chase keeps going into disguise for different situations, which John Candy does a few times in this, like mm-hmm. puts on disguises. But <laughs> well, he has, yeah, he's when he's the window uh, washer guy, or, mm-hmm. or when he's or, the air conditioning repairman. <laughs> yeah, or he's the the salon owner. Yep, with the beard. Yeah, or yeah, at the very weird. end when he's dressed in drag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like we already said, I mean, this movie's got John Candy doing Aikido backflips. What's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> so basic idea here is that there's a uh, a popular young model and she goes missing. And uh, her father hires the Crumb and Crumb Detective Agency. And so some <clears throat> deceased relatives of John Candy's character were basically like modern day Sherlock Holmes's, like the best in the business uh, detectives. And so John Candy's kind of, he's actually technically pretty good at his job, but he's also a bumbling buffoon at the same time. <laughs> right, right. So he does, he has his own firm, like a small time shop in Florida or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the guy who's running John Candy's company, who's played by seminal 80s asshole character Jeffrey Jones. Mm -hmm. He is actually kind of involved with the whole kidnapping plot, so he wants nobody to be able to find her. So knowing that John Candy is a bumbling fool, he brings him on to take the case and, you know, silliness ensues from there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, that kind of nails it. And again, I've always say, you know, we've talked about at length about 80s 90s movies and like the practical effects like i found myself laughing throughout this one because you know at one point uh he's playing darts and he drops like the dartboard through like the old ship model and it's like they actually had to do that you know or uh there's one part where uh he falls off the dock 
And then like the splash ends up being like, this is like if they dropped like a boat into the water, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. Like yeah. I still just brought a smile to my face to see. And I was not expecting it to be like that level of like slapstick. I, I don't know if I expected it to be quite that level. I had a feeling it was going to be really goofy because I had seen the poster and the poster is like him with big suction cups on his knees, like clinging to the outside of a skyscraper window, making a silly face, which just led me to believe like, okay, this is just going to be kind of off the wall. But yeah, for me, because he's always like, I like John Candy, but he's always like plays similar characters in like similar tone tonally in his movies. Yeah, that just once this stuff started happening, I was like, "Oh, I wasn't expecting this." But. Yeah, I wonder if it's like as I was just saying, he seemed to play a lot of supporting characters or at least co leads, and I wonder if he didn't get kind of typecast into that lovable loser goofball kind of character like Del Griffith or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then this, it's like, okay, this is a lead starring vehicle for him, and since it's not like a necessarily an ensemble cast kind of thing, it's just like. He's shot out of a cannon to do something completely different. Mm-hmm. I'll say it wasn't 100% successful for me. You know, I am a fan of the movie Fletch. Uh, I love Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. I watched that movie a ton when I was younger. Um, this is one of those cases I wonder if I would like this more if I had seen it when I was like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's it's fine it's a relatively enjoyable movie but i did find it a little bit like tedious at times and like yeah like it was trying a little too hard with some of its visual gags and stuff like sometimes they just didn't feel i don't know natural or like they they flowed well with what was going on or something oh that makes sense to me because yeah i don't think it's certainly not a home run and with me just you know watching all of these for the first time like Plain Strange Omnibus feels like a classic movie that will always be relevant. Where this one certainly feels like more of a product of its time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that statement makes a lot of sense to me. But uh, interesting supporting cast in this. We already mentioned Jeffrey Jones, who, uh, despite his real life personal life and how troublesome that is, uh, you know, he's very memorable from. A, a whole bunch of movies during this time period. Mm-hmm. Beetlejuice being one Beetlejuice of them. Beetlejuice a big one. What do you call it? I'm not familiar with his personal life, so I'll have to. Uh, Kitty porn. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> At some point in the 90s, that, that all came out, and that's why you haven't seen him a whole lot since then. Ugh. He's still kicking around, but uh, yeah. So. All right, then. But, you know, looking at his... I can judge the person and his craft separately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's good in a role like this. He's, he's a guy where you like to watch bad things happen to him. So, like, he collects yeah. fossils and he has, like, a, a, a fossilized pterodactyl egg that John <laughs> right. Candy's just always on the verge of destroying. And you love watching him squirm when it's in mm-hmm. danger and stuff like that. And the only thing for him in that face of his, it's like, as soon as I saw him in this, I was like, oh, he's a bad guy. I think that's just his face. Has he ever not played like, I mean, I guess he's not a bad guy in Beetlejuice, but he's like a buffoon. Uh, Yeah, I think he might be the bad guy, though, isn't he? In what? Beetlejuice? No, he's he's the dad, right? Yeah, but I mean, he's not like, not say he's the bad guy, but yeah, I don't know. 
It's been so long since I've seen Beetlejuice. I mean, in a manner of speaking, because they want to. Or if he's not the bad guy, he's a prick. Yeah, they want to use the ghosts who are like the innocent lead characters, but yeah, I guess in a manner of speaking, he kind of is. Yeah. Again, in that movie, though, like during the whole uh, uh, like dance number dinner mm-hmm. scene, like you like watching his face get smashed in the, the shrimp oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and everything. So I guess you're right. We'll bring it up on the Beetlejuice episode. That oh, I, to, right I cannot wait for that, boy. <laughs> Beetlejuice episode all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you, this was a little traumatizing for me because I grew up loving Annie Potts as Janine in Ghostbusters. And mm. so that's got like a very innocent place in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like she was a cartoon character I watched as a kid. Sure. And then she plays kind of a scumbag in this. And Big time. There's that one scene where uh, her and Jeffrey Jones are about to get it on, and you can see her nipples through her bra, and I was a little bit like, oh, no, they're oh, tainting any pots for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally different. I mean, she looks, like, different enough to where it took me a second, and I was like, oh, that's definitely Janine. I thought she was really good in it. Mm-hmm. She was great playing that like despicable, petty, uh, just like oh. money grubbing bitch character. Yeah, absolutely. Even her, because I was like, oh, she's she's evil, you know, early on. Yeah, I would have never guessed it, but she was like, she was right on that same page as Jeffrey Jones of like a character that you just can't wait to see them get theirs. Mm-hmm. Totally. Her other love interest, the kind of, you know, Airheaded uh, tennis coach or whatever. Yep. Uh, that's Tim Thomerson, who is in a bunch of uh, Empire Pictures films and Full Moon features like Doll Man and Trancers, which you and I were talking about recently. Uh-huh. Let me ask you a question. Is he, I don't have it in front of me, is he in inner space? Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. He's a guy who, like, he was a leading man in, like, shitty, low-budget, mm-hmm. like, action sci-fi horror movies, but he was, like, a supporting character in, quote-unquote, real movies, like, who's Harry Crumb. He's got a familiar face, for sure. The other one that I recognize immediately is Shawnee Smith. Yes. The That's younger the sister who kind of becomes the right-hand man for Harry Crumb, which I wasn't expecting, but... uh mm-hmm. You know, classically, she is in the 80s Blob movie, which I will always love her for. Oh, yes. I love that movie. Yeah, she's the lead in that. And I remember thinking in the Blob, there's one or two scenes where she has to scream bloody murder. Mm-hmm. And it was like the scream was so good. I was like, is that really her? Like, or is that somebody else? Because if so, she's an amazing screamer. Mm. And then there's a scene in this movie where she has to scream as well. And I think it's actually her. I think she's like one of the best screamers in Hollywood. Nice. Because <laughs> that is an ability that I don't think everybody has. And some people just sound a little goofy when they try and do that. But she can belt out a fucking scream. I mean, she sure can. Yeah, I bet that is her Mills. No, I think it is. After now seeing a second film mm-hmm. uh, where she has like a huge scream when they're in the car, that's uh, the the brake line's been cut. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, she's not in a ton of stuff, but I've always kind of liked her because of the yeah. blob. And, uh, you know, when it was on TV, when I was a little younger, I used to watch uh, Becker and she was on that oh. show as well. Okay. She was like the receptionist at the doctor's office. Gotcha. Yeah, so... Who's Harry Crumb? Hmm. 
I definitely didn't like John Candy in this as much as something like Planes, Trains. And I don't know if it's just because I'm so used to him yeah. playing that other kind of character that we talked about. I'd be hard-pressed to see anyone say that they like him more in Harry Crumb than Planes, Trains. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, he's a good comedic actor, but this kind of, like, broad goofy fucking slapstick like i'm a i think i'm a genius but i'm actually a moron mm-hmm. that is something that like jim carrey does very well is like a comedy character yeah. in ace ventura i was gonna say i think you for me you nailed it perfectly with the <clears throat> ace ventura reference yeah i mean this was a few years too early but i'm thinking like someone like even like ace or uh austin powers like the way he's like kind of a weirdo um, like bumbling fool, but at the same time, he's like the best spy in the world. Like, I feel like guys like Mike Myers and Jim Carrey are better at this kind of broad role than John Candy, where more so I just want him to be like likable, lovable. And yeah, um, he does come off a little arrogant at times in this. And I just, I don't know. I, I feel like he's having a blast doing the movie, probably because he got to do a lot of stuff you didn't normally get to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't love him in it and I didn't love this movie all told. Yeah. I'm certainly not over the moon about it, but I I know I liked him. I I just like I've this just affirmed for me more that I just liked him in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it seemed like he was having a good time and he made me laugh. You know, he's just got that he's got a certain just charisma to him that I have I have not seen the little things I've seen him in. I've never not liked John Gandy. Oh yeah, same here. Yeah, so always like him. Yeah, but it's not. It's it's very different. It's very different. Oh yes, a very different role. The tone is just so much, so much more different. There's just times in this where like I'm sitting there and I'm like, is this really fucking happening? Like (laughs) uh, the part where he slides off the roof and he gets caught on the ceiling fan, and then the little kid turns up the speed on the ceiling fan. And so he's just like spinning around, like <laughs> hanging off of it. And uh-huh. it just felt, even in this goofy movie, it felt a little too like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. Mm. It was getting too close to Naked Gun and yeah, uh, maybe Airplane a little bit. for you. Maybe a yeah. little bit. But it's weird because I also do love, you know, really over the top silly movies like Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber and Austin Powers. But maybe it's something to do with the fact that I saw those and watched them a lot in my formative years where some of these mm-hmm. other movies I didn't. And I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah it's tough because, yeah, it's tough because like these kind of things, Ace Ventura is another one too, where it's like in Ace Ventura, is it, it's not like a height, not so much a heightened sense of reality like this is. Mm-hmm. You know, like Ace Ventura is just, he's just like a lunatic character surrounded by normal Yeah, in a relatively real world. Yeah. Or this one, like, yeah, when you got stuff like uh, the thing with the ceiling fan, like, you know, that. Like, or him in the air conditioning out. vent and. Yeah. It's getting more towards that uh, airplane style you clearly. Yeah, maybe. Don't love. Maybe. Maybe. That could be it, I think. <laughs> and yeah, uh movie did not take the world by storm. I don't know what the budget was, but it only, it made just shy of 11 million in the box oh. office, so. Like, I get the impression that this is something maybe they hope they could have turned into a franchise, but... Oh, definitely. Not quite there. Yeah. I mean, this, this could have been if people are more into it, but... I Yeah, I could bet it could be turned people off a little, that it wasn't, like, the John Candy they know and love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it makes you wonder, like, how much of it is just the, like, the directing isn't really there. 
because there's nothing like particularly stylish or noteworthy about no. the way this film is it's made. It's just point and shoot. Um, and I mean, you had John Hughes did Planes, Trains. You had Walter Hill, who may not have been known for comedy, but is an accomplished director who did Brewster's Millions. This one is directed by a guy named Paul Flaherty, who I am not familiar with. Uh, he directed the movie Clifford, which I haven't seen, which I believe is a Martin Short movie. Sure. Martin Short. And what's the guy's name? Who's the dad in Beethoven? Oh, boy. I think it's another like high strung guy and like the annoying neighbor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he directed 18 again, which I've never seen. Yeah, I don't know. Just nothing special there either. Or who's Charles, Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. Yes. Am I right? Is that him and Clifford? Yes. Okay. I at least half know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, all told, um, you know, not a huge fan of Who's Harry Crumb. Not a, not a bust, not a dud, but yeah, not a all out a win, different though. a different experience, especially you you know putting it up against plane strains. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, anything else to say about that one, or shall we cap well, this guy off? Let's get to it. All right. Briefly, I would like to just talk about John Candy again for a moment. Um, you know, unfortunately, he died at a relatively young age, uh, 43. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on vacation in Mexico at the time during the filming of Wagons East, and he had a heart attack in his sleep. Mm. Uh, there was no autopsy performed, so nobody 100% knows why, but apparently he uh, had a family history of uh, people dying young from heart attacks, and he also was obviously a larger guy, so always struggled with his weight. Right. And... Uh, this is something that I kind of wanted to touch on because I've always heard about it, and I thought it would be a, a interesting time to touch on it since we're talking about John Candy. Are you familiar with the Confederacy of Dunces curse? No, sir. So there's like a classic comedy book called A Confederacy, a Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, I don't know what it's about, never read it. But I had heard about this a long time ago that people say that the project, like being adapted into a film, is cursed because... Uh, John Candy is the second person attached to the movie to die. Uh, the first being John Belushi, who was attached to play the same character in the mo- in a movie adaptation that was going to be directed by Harold Ramis, and then he ended up dying young. And then subsequently, Chris Farley was attached to a version of the Confederacy of Dunces, and he also died young. Mm. And so the more superstitious out there uh, might want to write their uh, letters to um, Nick Offerman and mm-hmm. plead with him not to <laughs> play the role in the movie that apparently he is going to play if that movie ever gets made. Uh, I was just reading about that earlier. but um, So that's just one of the projects that he had in development that didn't get made. Another one is he was actually supposed to star opposite Sylvester Stallone in a John Hughes movie called Bartholomew versus Neff, which was oh. going to be like a kind of two warring neighbors kind of movie. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And uh, never seen Wagons East. I understand it's apparently not very good. And that was one of his final two movies that came out after his death. Yeah, I got nothing there either. Yeah. So, yeah, that's John Candy for you. R.I.P. Mm-hmm. Poster time? Please. All right. First up, we have Brewster's Millions, which, gosh, you know, I never looked at it closely enough before mm-hmm. is this a this is a painting it's it's slightly hard to tell 
John Candy looks like a if, painting. Richard Pryor kind of doesn't. If John Candy wasn't there, I'd say photo with like a funny background. He's got to be a painting. They just possibly just added on after the fact. Because mm-hmm. I don't think he was intended to be there the whole time. <laughs> now, what about Richard Pryor, though? Like I and it, all the times I'd glanced at this poster before, I just thought it was a photo. Like, obviously, the background was fake, but yeah, I think that's a photo and John Candy's a painting. Wow. Maybe. I mean, you know, it's an old poster, like blowing up this image on my phone to see it clearly enough. I can't really mm-hmm. tell, but I would buy that it's a photo. I would also buy that it's a painting. I yeah, think it, I think what you said is uh, potentially likely that they added John Candy after the fact. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be a photo, but it looks just weird enough to not be one. Yeah. Other than that, you know, you got your tagline. I don't know. It's uh, there's I feel like. Both characters should be bigger on this poster. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I could get behind that. I feel like John Candy doesn't really need to be there, to be honest, unless no. you just want him on there to sell it with like, oh, look who else is in this movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, Richard Pryor, main character, as we said, John Candy kind of disappears from the movie a little bit at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, basically Richard Pryor popping out through a giant pile of money with the tagline. You don't have to be crazy to blow $30 million in 30 days, but it helps. Yeah. Um, it's fine. It's very 80s. The font and that, like, you know, gold millions airbrush look, you know, just yeah. very 80s. Logo's nice. You know, I like it in as much as it's like, you know, somebody designed this poster. Someone had an idea for it and they got it okayed and then they made it come to fruition and it's not just like the actors standing there yeah looking angrily at one another from opposite sides of the poster or something you know like, yeah so i don't know there's some artistry to it i kind of like it yeah i kind of like it i mean i feel like you can make some changes and make it a lot better but it works it certainly works mm-hmm. uh next up is planes trains and automobiles this one's real mm-hmm. simple it's just a white background with steve martin looking horrified as john candy's character is giving him a nice big old hug and mugging mm-hmm. for the camera i mean yeah it works. It's got the chest. It's got the, I mean, the outfits. So let you know, like there's there's a trip involved. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's giving you all the necessary info and highlighting those two characters. Yeah, I, mean, it, I mean, even looking at this, you know, John Candy is oblivious to how he actually comes across yeah, to people. The thing that's actually kind of brilliant about this poster is if you take away the title and everything else on it, as long as you are familiar with who visually Steve Martin and John Candy are. You can look at this and you can say, okay, this is a movie based on their facial expressions. It looks like a comedy. Also, these are comedy actors. I can tell that there's some kind of trip involved and that Steve Martin doesn't want anything to do with John Candy, but it looks like he's stuck with him. And Mm -hmm. they've got like uh, baggage and stuff like that. So that reinforces the whole idea of a trip. It's like you can tell what this movie is without knowing anything else about it. And that's. You know, you don't need something super complicated here. Yeah. But it also doesn't feel just like a shitty, like, two characters' faces kind of poster. Like, this image, as simple as it is, tells a story. Yeah. I mean, this this could have been done, like, a million horrible ways, and whoever figured this out nailed it. Yeah. It's, like, it's brilliant in its simplicity, to be completely honest. This is, like, far and away, like, one of the most successful posters I feel like we've ever (laughs) done on the show. Yeah, and it's not flashy. It's not like, oh, this is the most amazing painting you've ever seen. Like, it's just, it's it's solid. Perfect shot, perfect acting. Like, 
like you said, you nailed it. Just you don't even need words here. Yeah. I give it major props for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Same here. And then who's Harry Crumb? The aforementioned uh, John Candy suction cupped onto the side of a skyscraper making a kind of uh-oh face. <laughs> yeah. It sells the movie, I guess. It's just it's not particularly appealing in any way, but. Yeah, I'm not uh, super thrilled by this one. Yeah. I mean, to me, it would have made sense to have like almost like uh, a Brady Bunch kind of thing with his different uh, uh, get Disguises. Oh, yeah. That would totally be, you know, which one of the, who's Harry Crumb? I don't know. They all are. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. I mean, this gets across, you know, there's some kind of espionage of some kind in it. Yeah. You can determine he's got some, got the camera, a couple cameras, you know. Mm-hmm. But. but yeah, this does just push across the feeling to me of like, this is a really silly, like just slapstick goofball movie. And it's not yeah. supremely appealing to me. That Ryan Miller will hate. Uh, mm-hmm. I also feel like the logo is kind of oddly small for as much dead space as there is. Yeah, big time. That that I don't question mark is lousy. Yeah, I don't particularly like the logo, and that bright red on like the cool blue is kind of clashes a little bit. Big time. It's hard to read. Yeah, and the red and white is just like why does it look like a candy cane? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this uh, this feels like it was like quickly got worked up and yeah. Send it. But. Nerves of steel, body of iron, brain of stone. Not a mm. huge fan of that either. No, no. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, Millsy, break it down for the people. I think as simple as it is, planes, trains, and automobiles, that gets five of the most premium shower curtain clips <laughs> that yes. Del Griffith has to offer in his little, his little yes. booklet that he carries around. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Brewster's Millions. I I like the concept. It's not like the most successful execution. I'd give it, I'd give it three clips. Mm-hmm. And uh, who's Harry Crumb? It's not like horrible. It's, it's, I guess it's a two, it's, two clips. We've seen far worse, but yeah, it's it's two shower curtain rings. Yeah, it's it's a uh, two on a curve. Yeah, but man, planes, trains, and automobiles. Short uh, of like. I don't know, something super iconic like the Back to the Future poster or something. Like, this is mm-hmm. this is up there. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a really good poster. Totally. I mean, it, just, it nails it. Yeah. Nails both of their characters, what they're doing, and the tone. And it just goes to show, I feel like a lot of times we do talk about, like, how boring it is just to have photos and, like, montages and stuff. Like, this is a photo. It's just a simple photo with a white mm-hmm. background. And goddamn if it's not perfect. Yeah. Love it. Cool. Good job, Mills. Shower clips, I look. Just <laughs> couldn't get any better. I never think about these things beforehand. That I always... Meaning... In the moment, I'm like, why didn't I think of this? <laughs> and as it's gearing up, I'm like, what's he going to say? Fuzzy mut- fuzzy mittens? <laughs> uh, travel uh, cases? <laughs> nope. You nailed it, Mills. Take a bow, kid. Hypoallergenic uh, pillows? Yep. Could be anything. Well played. All right, uh, that brings us then, I believe, to, to the, the nitty gritty, our favorite time. Mm-hmm. Bye, Barburn. Bye, Barburn. We'll make this quick. This is easy for me. It's not a launch into the sun, but I'll be perfectly honest. I'm not sure how much, if at all, I actually laughed during this movie, Brewster's Millions. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It was entertaining. There's not a lot of John Candy. 
And I just, you know, I didn't find it overall overtly funny. So there's my burn. My borrow, who's Harry Crumb. Um, I'm a little more into slapsticky bullshit than you are, clearly. <laughs> so there was there was quite a few bits where I laughed at this. And uh gonna buy that plane strains automobiles, man. It's classic. I, I get it. <laughs> I finally I finally get it. <laughs> Put that on the poster. I get it, Joe Dexberger. <laughs> there it is. Hit me, Mills. Well, I'm obviously buying planes, trains, and automobiles as well. Uh-huh. And, you know, I I can say that like the, the specifically the parody movies that we talked about earlier in the show, uh, I can say that I feel I am not generally a fan of those. Slapstick is another story where there is goofy stuff like some of the ones we talked about, Dumb and Dumber and Austin Powers and that kind of stuff that I like. So it's not that I just don't like slapstick across the board, hmm. but yeah, really, who's Harry Crumb? It barely moved the needle for me. Uh, I didn't find it all that funny, and I didn't really find Brewster's Millions, like, laugh out loud funny either. But I was Mm. more invested in the plot of Brewster's Millions and the concept and Richard Pryor's character. Like, you know, it was an absurd situation to put, like, a kind of real person in. Whereas Mm. Who's Harry Crumb, I just, I don't know, I wasn't invested in what was going on the whole time. Fair enough. It just felt like a subpar joke delivery system where there was something a little more going on in Brewster's Millions than... Subpar joke deliveries. I feel there was something a little more than just the goofiness going on in Brewster's Millions. So I'm going to buy planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm going to borrow Brewster's Millions, and I'm going to, you know... I'll I'll leave Who's Harry Crumb out in the sun. All right, I'm not going to launch it into the sun, but I'll leave it out to to fade the DVD packaging. <laughs> Subpar joke delivery system. I can't forget that one. <laughs> well, that's good. Put that on my business card. Ryan Miller, <laughs> Subpar joke delivery system. Oh, shit. <laughs> well played. Yeah. Mills. Yes. I mean, now, now we can get to your favorite part. Ooh. Finding out what we're going to watch next. Mosey, how many potential episodes do we have? Uh, right now we have 224 themes. Jesus. As yet, untapped. God, you people are lucky. Did you hear me? How many possibilities are out there? <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so. Here we go, Mills. One and 224. We've got 190. 190. Oh, all right. (laughs) This episode, or next episode, will be called Alternate History. (laughs) One of these. I'm very excited to watch. Uh, I've seen two of them. I've I've seen the middle one. The middle one? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the one I haven't seen, and I'm not that excited about it, but okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, well, yeah, I mean, this is going to be interesting for sure. Oh, yeah. Whether or not it'll be good, I don't know, but it'll be interesting. Isn't that what you call things when you don't want to say they'll be bad? You you call them interesting? Right, right, so you don't, like, break everyone's heart. Yeah, this is going to be not just interesting, fascinating. (laughs) Well said. Alternate history up next. Millsy, that's going to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, for Triple Threat Theater... I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. 
was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.